Between 1910 and 1912, a bizarre anomaly happened in American history, where axe murders cropped up everywhere. Places like Colorado Springs, Iowa, Kansas, and even Louisiana. Many murders were credited to an imaginary man who rode the rails to satiate his bloodlust, while others believed it to be the work of the infamous New Orleans axe murderer. One February afternoon in 1911, police of West Crowley, Louisiana received a call from concerned citizens who worried something had happened to their neighbor. Officer Bellew reported to the urgent call, but nothing could prepare him for the scene he would soon discover. The home's occupants, a husband, wife, and child, had all been murdered in their sleep. Their skulls had all been split open. The beds were drenched in blood, and bloody footprints trailed the floor. As the doors to the home were locked, it was indicated that the perpetrator must have used the window to enter the house while the family slept. One of the officer's most gruesome discoveries was a bucket of blood, and the bloodied axe left at the head of the bed. This instance was only one of the many axe slayings that would terrify towns of Louisiana and Texas along the Southern Pacific Railroad. This railroad system connected New Orleans, Louisiana to Beaumont, Texas. After a tip from his mistress, the police soon suspected Raymond Barnabet, a sharecropper and petty thief from Lafayette, Louisiana. During Raymond's trial in October 1911, his children testified against him, stating that he would often come home with bloody clothes and brag about murdering families. Both children said they feared he would murder them if he were free. On November 26, 1911, while Raymond Barnabet was in jail, another murder happened. In Lafayette, Norbert Randall, his wife, three children, and nephew were all murdered with an axe. However, there was one horrific detail that was different. As the rest of the members were slain, Norbert was shot in the head. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Show notes and sources can be found in the description. Also, stay up to date with the latest from me by following or supporting my Buy Me A Coffee page, which you can also find in the description. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to make sure you do not miss an episode. Also, comment your thoughts about each case or provide a request. I enjoy interacting with my listeners. Today's story concerns Clementine Barnabet, infamous for the voodoo murders. This case happened in the 1900s, so it is old, but it is a very bizarre one. Her story comprises darkness, mystery, and potentially the involvement in a cult and the occult. As a disclaimer, I found a series of newspaper clippings from the time this case happened, so some of the names may be inconsistent with names you may find on the internet. Also, I tried to stay consistent with the dates I found in the newspaper articles, so there may be some inconsistencies there because, let's be real, record keeping was not that great back then. (laughs) 
Since record keeping was less detailed than it is now, it is believed that Clementine Barnabet was born around 1894 in St. Martinville, Louisiana to Raymond Barnabet and Nina Porter. Clementine's father, Raymond, was a sharecropper, which was not a profitable career. Sharecropping is a legal agreement in that a landowner who owns agricultural land allows the tenant to use the farmland for a share of the crops produced. The system worked because the landowner provided a percentage of their land to be operated by the sharecropper. The landowner also usually provided the necessities such as animals, seeds, tools, and housing. Local merchants would also offer food and other supplies on credit. In exchange for all of this, at the end of the season, the tenant would pay the owner a share of the crop. This share could have been one-half to two-thirds of the claim. After the owner received his share of the money, the tenant would have to repay the merchant to pay off this debt. If there was any money left over, this is what the tenant made and could keep. However, if his share was less than what he owed, he remained in debt. Sharecropping sounds like a very erratic business. I mean, even when you're farming, there is no guarantee that you're going to have a profitable season. So you can only imagine how frustrating sharecropping could actually be. You could do well in some seasons while you won't make a thing in others. So Raymond would also make a career as a petty thief to help bring money in. He was described as not a very good man in life. Not only did he steal as a means to support his family, but he also constantly cheated on his wife and would physically abuse his family. Along with her parents, Clementine lived with her older brother, Sephrin. Some reports state that she had four brothers, while others state that her only sibling is Sephrin. The Barnabet family lived in a rundown, poverty-stricken town. From this type of childhood, Clementine did not have an easy upbringing. In 1909, the family moved to Lafayette. So this was a time when Lafayette started booming. Lafayette was originally called Vermilionville and had a trade post near the Vermilion River. In 1884, Vermilionville was no longer a village, with a small trading post and became a town. With the town came a new name. Many people were coming to settle in Lafayette from Texas and Oklahoma. So this case took place during this little economic boom. Of course, just because a city is growing and seeing incredible highs does not mean everyone in town is doing wonderful financially. Unfortunately for the Barnabet family, they experienced these hardships. 1909 began a gruesome and fearful time for many African-American families living in Louisiana. Edna Opelousas and her three children were found bludgeoned to death in Rain, Louisiana, which is roughly 15 miles west of Lafayette. There is some speculation that this act may not have been linked to the murders that ensued in 1911. However, this would align with Clementine's allegation that she committed her first sacrifice at 15 years old. When Clementine was 17 years old, her family started the cult called the Church of Sacrifice, believing that killing sinners would lead them to immortality. The Church of Sacrifice is an offshoot of Christ's sanctified holy church 
It is speculated that this supposed church had two other unidentified members. This was, in fact, a cult in which Clementine was a leader at only 17 years old. The organization was said to have provided solace for the Barnabet family, as it provided opportunities for male and female members alike. The first confirmed murder of the Church of Sacrifice occurred in February 1911. This was the Byers family of West Crowley, which was discussed at the opening of this episode. According to sources, this was a poor part of town, which usually overlooked murders. However, this murder was so brutal that it could not be so easily dismissed. On Saturday, February 25th, police were contacted about another incident in the Lafayette area. They found that Alexander Andrus, his wife Mimi, and their son, aged 8, and daughter, 11 months old, suffered the same fate as the Byers family. Mimi's brother, Lazim Felix, discovered the terrifying scene at 7 in the morning. Sheriff Lacoste and Deputy Coroner Clark were dispatched to the scene. Alexander, Mimi, and their son were murdered in their beds with an axe to their heads. The baby was still lying in the cradle, was struck with its head crushed. Both adults were then taken up on their knees beside the bed, with Mimi's arms wrapped around Alexander's shoulder as if they were praying. The baby was then placed beside the mother. The police also noticed that the murder weapon, an axe, was left at the crime scene. It was believed by Dr. Clark that the murders took place sometime after midnight. Sheriff Louis Lacoste suspected the murderer from both cases had to be the same individual. He assumed the brutal murders must have been committed by a recently escaped lunatic from the Pineville area named Garkin Godfrey. The police arrested Godfrey's mother, who informed them that Garkin could not have committed the crimes as he was at Maurice. They found Garkin, however, they could not connect him to the crimes as Parties from Maurice asserted Garkin was there the whole time. Investigators kept Godfrey in jail until he could be transported back to the asylum. On March 22, 1911, the murderer struck again. In San Antonio, Texas, Louis Cassaway, his wife, and their three children were murdered, similarly to the previous two families. However, investigators found two key differences. First, the murder happened in Texas, while the others occurred in Louisiana. Second, Miss Cassaway was Caucasian. Every target was African American up until this point. Because Mrs. Cassaway was Caucasian, investigators initially believed this was a hate crime. According to a newspaper article, Sheriff Lacoste and Texas authorities were in contact since the cases were similar. After investigators experienced a few false starts and bad leads, they finally received a break in the case. Their initial belief was disproved when police received an unexpected confession from Raymond Barnabet's mistress. Not long after the Cassaway's murders, the mistress told police that Raymond confessed to murdering the family during one of their fights. Because Raymond had a long rap sheet and was known to have a volatile temper, Sheriff Lacoste had him arrested as soon as possible. 
Raymond stood trial in Louisiana in October 1911 of the Byers family, the Andrus family, and the Cassaway family murders. Clementine and Zephyrin testified against their father during the trial, pinning all the murders on him. Clementine recalled a night when her father returned home covered in blood while threatening his family. Zephyrin confirmed the story while adding that their father bragged about murdering the Andrus family. What sealed Raymond's fate was his children expressing their fear of their father, claiming they were not safe if Raymond remained free. Even though Raymond provided an alibi for the night of the Broussard family murders, his wife and the Stevens family, who lived with the Barnabets, claimed his innocence for the Andrus murders. A Louisiana jury convicted Raymond. His punishment was to be hanged for his crimes. However, he was granted a new trial, stating that he was drunk on the night of the first murders. As Raymond sat in jail awaiting for his new trial, on November 26, 1911, another murder took place. In their cabin on Lafayette Street, Norbert Randall and his wife, Azima, their three children and nephew, were murdered. The bodies were discovered by their 10-year-old daughter, who spent the night at her uncle's house. It was reported that the daughter found the kitchen door to be opened when she arrived home. And upon entering, she found her parents and the children murdered in their bed. Norbert appeared to have been shot in the head before receiving a strike from an axe. The children, aged 8, 6, 5, and 2, had been beaten to death by the blunt end of the axe. As in the other cases, the axe was left at the crime scene, but it appeared to have been cleaned. Unfortunately, any evidence outside the home was washed away by the rain. It was also reported that Norbert, his wife, and the baby girl were found in one bed, and the three boys were in another, all found to be struck in the head. This led Sheriff Lacoste to believe that Raymond had accomplices. Something about the Barnabet children seemed to disturb the sheriff, and he wanted to revisit them. Many people were suspicious of the Barnabet children, who were not well-liked in the community. The neighbors described Clementine and Zephyrin as filthy, shifty degenerates. Another critical detail that disturbed many was that when Raymond was arrested, Clementine had blood on her dress. When questioned about it, she stated that her father wiped his hands on her dress. While searching the Barnabet home, the investigators discovered several of Clementine's blood-stained clothes with what appeared to be bits of human brains. It was also reported that the latch on the door was slicked with blood. Investigators quickly arrested Clementine, Zephyrin, and two cult members. During questioning, Zephyrin was released as he provided an alibi for the night of the murder. During this time, District Attorney Rubira received a phone call from Chemist Metz of New Orleans on Wednesday, January 17, 1912, who tested the blood on Clementine's clothing and confirmed they found pieces of brain. With Clementine and Raymond in jail, many people felt safe. However, the murders soon continued. In January 1912, three more murders occurred while the cult was under Zephyrin's leadership. 
On January 19, 1912, 30-year-old Marie Warner and her three children, aged 9, 7, and 5, were found at noon, murdered with an axe in a hut in Crowley. She and her husband had been separated for four years, and he had been living in Beaumont at the time of this incident. The crime was discovered by Ben Robinson, who was enticed to enter the house when Marie's mother was too scared to enter through the back door, which was left open. Upon entering the home, Robinson found the mangled bodies lying in bed in the front room. Investigators believed the victims were killed while they slept, and some occupants were murdered in the back room. However, the perpetrator moved the bodies to the bed in the front room. All of the victims were lying face down on the bed. The only evidence discovered at the crime scene was a blood-stained axe left in the room with the bodies. Tracks led from the back of the house, leading investigators to speculate that multiple suspects committed this crime. They also sent for bloodhounds to track the murderer or murderers down. If bloodhounds were brought in, and if they found any evidence, it is unknown. Zephyrin Barnabet was taken into police custody despite having an alibi for these murders. Police suspected that Zephyrin was carrying out either his father's or Clementine's or both of their wishes. The third family in this killing spree was the Broussards. I tried to find more information on the other victims at this time. However, I think how the Broussards were found overshadowed the other two slain families. On Saturday, January 20th, 1912, Felix Broussard, his wife, and three children were killed in their Lake Charles, Louisiana home. This time, the scene was a little different. The victim's hands were splayed apart with pieces of wood, and a message was left behind. Some speculated it was written in pencil, while others believed it was written in blood on the wall. The letter was a rendition of Psalm 912 in the King James Bible and said, When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgotteth not the cry of the humble. In the end, it was signed, The Human Five. This led investigators to believe that they had multiple murderers at work. Many rumors and speculations were being made after news broke about this incident. With newspapers circulating the newly gruesome discovery, the crimes were linked to a voodoo ritual. The press suggested the deceased families were human sacrifices, which utilized the importance of the number five. It was speculated that families of five were the target of the heinous crimes. This caused rumors to spread like wildfire about Clementine being a part of a cult called the Church of Sacrifice, which not only allowed one immortality, but could also allow one to obtain wealth. Furthermore, it was alleged that the cult was led by Reverend King Harris, a Pentecostal revival preacher in Jennings. King was arrested as a suspect in connection with the Randall murders. It was known that King had held a meeting approximately one half block from the Randall home and that the Randall family had attended this meeting. While investigators were confident that they had their two murderers in prison, they believed that this case was carried out by some fanatical belief or teaching. 
However, when Harris was asked about his potential involvement in these murders and the cult, he stated he was disgusted to hear people thought his sermons could have influenced such horrific crimes. According to an article in the Lafayette Advertiser on January 27, 1912, a woman named Eliza Richards was held in police custody concerning the various murders committed. Investigators believed that Richards knew more about the murders than what she was letting on. However, Richards refused to discuss the case and the charges against her. It was also reported that she pleaded ignorance when questioned about the crime. This article also alleged that two African-American preachers were being held in a Lafayette jail in connection with the murders. It was alleged that they were members of the new religious sect Sacrifice Church. On February 20th, 1912, a neighbor discovered the bodies of 30-year-old Hattie Dove and her children, aged 14, 16, and 18. The 18-year-old slain daughter was separated from her husband and stayed with her mother. Again, the murder weapon was an axe left near the bodies. It is interesting to note that at this crime scene, the murderer left a cloth near the axe, which he used to wipe his bloody hands on. The axe found near the bodies also belonged to an African-American man who lived approximately two blocks from the murder site. It was later discovered that his stolen axe had been replaced with another axe. At this point, the African-American community was terrified many fervently begged God to be spared from these brutal visitations, while others believed the Lord had abandoned them, and others felt that a curse was brought upon their race. On February 26th, Sheriff Fontenot received a letter from a man in St. Martinville, Louisiana. The identity of this person was kept a secret. He claimed to have information regarding the axe murders. The anonymous tipster stated that he was fearful that he would be claimed as a next victim with this information and insisted that he had no involvement in any of the murders. He was willing to give investigators this information in self-defense. The letter further explained that he believed the murders were committed by a clique of religious fanatics and had nothing to fear when the guilty parties were caught. According to an article from the Lafayette Advertiser, which was reprinted from the New Orleans item by reporter R.H. Broussard on April 2, 1912, Clementine Barnabet made a confession to investigators and others declaring she committed the murders in Lafayette and Crowley. It was reported she gave the following account, which I edited for clarity my name is Clementine Barnabet. I was born and partly raised near St. Martinville and moved to Lafayette about three years ago when I began to lead a life of degradation. While in the company of two other women and two men in New Iberia, we met an old man who told us that he could sell us kanjas, or voodoo charms, with which we could do as we pleased. We would never be detected and would be protected from the hands of the law by the mere fact of these kanjas being in our possession. We bought them and paid $3 each and left New Iberia the same night. 
returning to Lafayette. When we began to plan our actions, we had not yet decided on committing any murders, but while discussing our plans, the question arose about whether we could kill and be protected by the hoodoos. One gang member was instructed to go to New Iberia and interview the hoodoo man, who said we were safe in any actions we might do. Our lives will always be fully protected by the power of hoodoos. Clementine recollected that in the fall of 1910, she and her accomplices went to Rain, Louisiana and drew lots to determine who would first attempt the hoodoos in committing murders. She said the lot fell on her, so she got to work that night. Her sister lived in Rain, near the OG Railroad Depot, and later during the night, disguised as a man, made her way to town. Barnabette claimed she found an axe in the yard near the cabin where she killed a mother and her three children. When asked how she gained access inside the house, Clementine stated that the light was burning, so she could easily see inside. She saw the mother sleeping in bed and started in motion the plan that the gang had planned. Barnabette admitted to striking the mother on the right temple upon entering the home, instantly killing her. One of the children began to awake from the noise, but she claimed she struck the child near his left ear before his head could fully rise from the pillow. Then she axed the other two children in the home. Clementine stated that she changed to the mother's clothes before returning to her sister's house and boarding a train back to Lafayette. She claimed to have arrived in Lafayette around midnight with the murders occurring around nine. Once she returned to Lafayette, she supposedly told her deeds to the gang and they watched the development of the case with great interest as it appeared that the murderer went undetected. The gang surmised that the hoodoos worked and they were safe. Then Clementine recalled the murder from Crowley, alleging that she carried out the murders with one woman who entered the home and another member who kept watch. She claimed that she struck the man first with the axe, which woke up the woman and struck her twice to ensure she was dead. After the adults were murdered, Clementine stated that it was easy to murder the two small children. It was reported that Clementine said, We thought it was better to kill them than to leave orphans, as they would suffer. She continued her confession detailing the third murder. The group decided to meet and lay out their plans in a refinery the night before an election because they knew the police would be busy with politics. They weren't sure who their victim or victims would be that night until they reached a railroad crossing where they saw a cabin with a light burning. Barnabette claimed that she and another woman entered the home where she struck the man whom she named Timmy and then his wife. After killing the parents, she then murdered the two children. At first, the baby in the cradle was overlooked until it started crying. She stated, that's when she killed the baby. Barnabette further stated, we took the man and woman and placed them in a kneeling position and left the house. I was near the house the following day when Timmy's brother came to the house and called them. And not getting any answer, he looked through the window and saw them dead. He began to cry. And I was one of the first to go to him and ask him what had happened. He told me, and I went to notify their parents, who lived nearby. I helped to wash them and prepare them for burial. 
Then Clementine was asked about the fourth and final murder. She claimed it was a Sunday night when she and her gang went out for a frolic and attended a meeting of the God Sacrifice Church. When they left the meeting, they found an axe and brought a bundle of old clothes. Once they were sure they were alone in the street, they crawled to the house and entered through the back before killing everyone living there. She further detailed, Once we had killed them, I took a pistol, which I had hidden under my dress, and I shot at Norbert Randall, the man I had killed. I struck him somewhere in the breast or, or body. I got the pistol from my brother's house during the afternoon and returned it the same night, so as not to be seen with it should the officers catch me. After this, we went uptown to talk the matter over. I returned home about 2 o'clock in the morning and went to bed, where I stayed until I awakened by the man I worked for the next morning at about 5. I worked around the house until Mr. Peck arrested me at about 10 in the morning. Within this hearing, she confirmed that she and her accomplices agreed they would not tell on each other, but she wanted to confess her part in the murders to clear her conscience. As a recap to her confession, Clementine Barnabette indicated to investigators that she murdered 17 people and was responsible for another 35 between 1911 and 1912. She also stated that even while she was in jail, she was responsible for the three murders that happened in January. In her confession, Clementine confirmed the rumors of voodoo playing a part in her slayings as she obtained a charm meant to protect her in her pursuit of killing. During this confession, she also revealed the existence of the Church of Sacrifice to investigators and claimed that she was a voodoo priestess. Barnabette admitted to having accomplices. Often they would draw lots to determine who would commit the murders. She would reveal the names of her accomplices, however they were dead leads for investigators. Furthermore, she would confess to killing the children in the families to prevent them from becoming orphans. Unfortunately, no one knows if this was the true motive for killing the children. Despite her admission, there were many holes in her story. Her credibility was damaged by her testimony against her father. The validity of her story weakened further when the claims against her accomplices were dead ends. While arrests were made, investigators could not make a link between any person and the so-called Human Five. On April 9th, the grand jury found six bills against Clementine Barnabette. District Attorney Bruner delayed her arraignment by a week in hopes that her accomplices would be caught and more evidence would be found. District Attorney Howard E. Bruner believed that some crimes were likely copycat crimes. Even so, he thought Clementine was morally depraved and justly guilty of all she had confessed. While awaiting arraignment, investigators arrested a half-sister of Clementine's named Pauline, who lived in Rain. Her movements were believed to be suspicious, according to police. During questioning, Pauline claimed to have little knowledge about Clementine. Sheriff Lacoste arrested another woman named Valina Mabry on a plantation near town. When presented in front of Clementine, she stated Valina was the Irene that helped her in the murders. Valina vehemently denied any involvement 
Unfortunately, all of the information presented led to public confusion. Did the Church of Sacrifice exist? Was Voodoo really involved? The people of Lafayette believed wholeheartedly that all the murders were Voodoo practices, or Voodoo sacrifices. Clementine further cemented this accusation by naming Joseph Thibodeau as the person who gave her the invisibility charm and alleged he was the one who instilled the ideas of crime in her mind. Thibodeau denied these accusations. While Clementine was in jail awaiting her sentence, another murder occurred in San Antonio, Texas. On April 13, 1912, William Burton, his wife, two children, and Leon Evers were discovered dead. The men appeared to have been murdered by an axe while having butcher knives thrust into their bodies. The children seemed to have been killed by the blow of an axe. Every detail of this murder left little doubt in authorities' minds that this act was carried out by the same Church of Sacrifice fanatics or a copycat killer. But because there were five victims, this further strengthened the claim of the human five. The only detail that points to a copycat killer is the distance. However, investigators point out that there had been sufficient time between the killings for the murderers to move that far. The article further states that William Burton was a hard-working man with a good reputation. He was not known to be the type to become involved in fanatics. No one thought he could have any enemies, so it seems the Burton family was just randomly selected for nothing more than the desire to kill. As she sat in jail, Clementine confessed to more and more murders, up to 35. However, her story changed with each instance, and her attorneys claimed insanity and stated that her confessions were unreliable. Clementine underwent numerous examinations after admission to determine whether she was sane and mentally fit for trial. Other key moments in this case to which Clementine alleged some of the victims were church members. Members of the alleged cult were inspired by the Old Testament sacrifices. Clementine also admitted to fondling some of the bodies regardless of their gender. These are just supposed confessions made by Clementine. It is unclear how true any of these allegations are, as this case and the murders she claimed to be a part of are shrouded in mystery. In October 1912, at 19 years old, Clementine was sentenced to life in prison and was sent to Angola State Penitentiary for the severity of her crimes. Angola has a sinister reputation, so it is not a place you want to find yourself. I cannot imagine being a 19-year-old locked up in this place. The Maximum Security Prison Farm, yes, it is a farm where inmates produce and sell wheat, corn, soybeans, cotton, and milo, and have livestock and flight birds. Nowadays, it is actually called Louisiana State Penitentiary. It is more commonly known as Angola after the slave plantation initially occupied this territory. Other nicknames that this prison has include Angola Plantation, The Farm, and The Alcatraz of the South. It is currently the largest maximum security prison in the United States, which also gives it the nickname a gated community. However, this place is known for its brutality, riots, escapes, 
and murders. On July 13, 1913, Clementine tried to escape Angola. Some reports state she was captured the same day, while others state she was captured the next day. After her first and only escape attempt, she became a model prisoner. By 1918, she became a cane cutter for the prison farm. There is a vague document which states that while Clementine was in prison, she received some sort of procedure. It is unknown what operation she was given, but it is suspected that a lobotomy was unlikely. However, the document states that she was restored to normal condition. Even though she was given a life sentence, Clementine was released in 1923 for good behavior. After her release, her whereabouts were unknown. But six years after her release and disappearance, Murders started to occur in New Orleans, eerily similar to the murders Clementine confessed to. Investigators believed Clementine had a hand in these six killings, but could not locate her. However, the main difference between these serial killers was that the Axemen of New Orleans targeted Italians. The identity of the Axemen of New Orleans still remains a mystery today. I also found an account about a woman living in Louisiana who visited her 103-year-old grandmother in 1985 to tell her about the story of Clementine Barnabet. After the grandmother passed away, the granddaughter found youthful pictures of her grandmother from a newspaper clipping who allegedly had an uncanny resemblance to Clementine Barnabet. And that is the story of the voodoo murders in Clementine Barnabet. If there's anything that I missed in my research, please comment and let me know. Also, what are your thoughts on this case? Do you think Clementine Barnabet was responsible for these murders? Do you believe there was a cult called the Church of Sacrifice? I'm not even sure what my stance is on this case, to be honest. Thank you for listening, everyone. If there is a case you would like me to cover, please reach out. I would love to hear your thoughts and recommendations. Stay safe, and I will see you for my next episode. Bye!